You may be seated uh, because I want to introduce the sermon this morning. There are several threads I'm seeking to tie together here this morning. This is Pentecost Sunday, uh, a day to celebrate uh, the Holy Spirit, God's gift of the Holy Spirit to the church as we just read about it. Uh, it's a day to celebrate the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit has worked in history uh, in Christ's church and works in our lives today. Uh, certainly the Spirit has always been with the people of God. The Spirit has always been with the church. But in the 16th century, uh, there was an especially powerful eruption of the Spirit's work in an event that we call the Protestant Reformation. Uh, an eruption of the Spirit's work that continues to reverberate with implications and with power down to this very day. Uh, and indeed, this year, as you uh, know if you've been around, uh, TPC uh, this year. You know that this year is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and we're celebrating it with Reformation sermons uh, throughout uh, throughout the year, uh, looking at different ways in which the Reformation uh, has uh, has given us a legacy of faith and and, and really a heritage of uh, of grace that we want to continue and maintain. Uh, so, what I want us to do this morning, we're going to look at uh, the impact of the Reformation on family life. Uh, but I think this is really a, a fitting thing to do on Pentecost Sunday, looking at the impact of the Reformation on family, on family life, on marriage, and in parenting. Uh, it's very interesting in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, the this, this sequence there that Paul in his letter to the Ephesians goes through. He, he commands the Ephesians to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he immediately moves from that into giving instructions about family relationships. He moves from a command to be filled with the Holy Spirit to talking about what husbands need to do and what wives need to do and what fathers, what parents need to do and what children need to do. As if to say, if you're going to live this way in your family, you must be filled with the Spirit. And when you are filled with the Spirit, the Spirit transforms daily life. The Spirit transforms family life. And so I want us to look at this today, uh, how the Spirit transforms family life, but I especially want us to use the example of the great reformer Martin Luther uh, as an example. And as a way of getting into this, I want to read Psalm 128 for us. We just sang it, but I want to read it as well, because this psalm really crystallizes the biblical vision for the family, a vision that I think Luther lived out as a representative, a vision we want to seek to live out in our families today. Uh, so Psalm 128, a song of ascents. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house. Your children like olive plants all around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you out of Zion, and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, would you thank you for your Spirit-inspired Word? Would you give us Spirit-inspired faith and obedience to cling to your Word, to conform our lives to your Word, to obey your Word? Father, today we especially thank you for the way that your Spirit works in us and works in our families. We thank you that the promise of the Holy Spirit is to us and to our children, to as many as you call. 
And so as we celebrate this promise of the Holy Spirit today and as we celebrate the Protestant Reformation as it turns 500 years old this year, Father, we pray that You would give Your grace to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Everyone likes a good love story, right? Everybody enjoys a good love story, right? Uh, today I want to tell you uh, one of the most important and famous love stories in history. Uh, but it starts in a very odd place for a love story to begin. Uh, it starts in a 16th century monastery in Erfurt, Germany. Uh, there was a monk in the monastery by the name of Martin Luther. Like all monks, he had taken vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Uh, but he was unusual among the monks. that He had an especially sensitive conscience, and he would continually torture himself with remembrance of his sins. He would go to his confessor and he would confess his sins. He would wear his priest out, confessing for hours at a time. Finally, the priest would say something like this to Martin. Martin, go commit a real sin and then come back and confess that. Uh, This is ridiculous. But he was anxious, constantly anxious about the state and the fate of his soul. But Martin Luther finally made an amazing discovery, a rediscovery really, uh, as God's Spirit worked in his life to open his eyes to see the truth of the Gospel. He discovered the grace of God. Through intense study of the Scriptures, he came to realize that salvation is received as a gift. Salvation is God's free gift to His people. It can't be earned by works. It can only be received by faith. This is something we know. Maybe to the point where we take it for granted. But in Luther's day, it was an amazing and joyous rediscovery. But as Martin Luther rediscovered the gospel of grace, all kinds of other things started to happen. It was like the first domino going down, but then a whole row of dominoes followed. This truth of God's amazing grace over time seeped into his mind and heart more and more. And he began to think through and work out the implications of this grace. And one of the things that happened is he realized the monastic vows he had taken were actually a mistake. That those monastic vows were really part of a legalistic and even superstitious religious system that needed to be dismantled. Luther wrote about his discovery because he had a desire to share this good news. And he became instantly famous all throughout Europe because so many others in his day were struggling with these same kinds of things. In the monasteries, in the convents, in the churches, people were struggling. They heard Luther's Gospel as good news. It really sparked a a revolution. A revolution was set in motion. And there could be no turning back. Word of Luther's teaching spread all over Europe, including the convents, including where uh, a number of young nuns were enthralled with his teaching on grace and on freedom, uh, including the convent in Brehenna in Germany. Now, it's not known how the nuns at the convent in Brehenna got access to Luther's writings. The Pope, of course, had moved quickly to forbid them. Uh, They were most likely smuggled in by someone. Uh, But virtually all of the nuns in this particular convent had been put there at an early age and without their consent. And so when they read Luther's writings, they realized that Luther was right and it was time to go. 
they felt justified in escaping the convent, even though it was a punishable offense, even though it would be going against what their superiors and what their family would have desired. In fact, many of the nuns pled with their families to take them out of the convent. But it made no financial sense to do that since their families had already paid a rather sizable sum of money to place them in the convent for life. Well, these nuns wanted out of the convent. They wanted to go live the life of freedom they saw described in the writings of Martin Luther, but they were running out of options, and so finally they turned to Luther himself and made their plea to him. Luther was moved by their plight, and he vowed to help them escape. Now, the nuns had to keep silent at virtually all times in the convent, and so formulating a plan was rather difficult to this day. We don't know exactly how they did it. Were they passing notes? Were they whispering at different times? We just don't know how they pulled it off. But we do know this. On the eve of Easter, April 4th, 1523, after the nuns had celebrated the vigil service in the convent courtyard, late that night, while the rest of the convent slept soundly after the evening's festivities, a single sharp sound like the crack of a whip pierced the ear. It was the signal the nuns had been waiting for all night. Dressed in their white habits and black veils, they fled their cells with just the clothes on their backs. And they ran silently down the dark halls and outside to where a wagon waited. They climbed into some fish barrels, uh, actually herring barrels. Uh, and these barrels were carried into town on a merchant wagon. And there they were unloaded. Twelve nuns in all had found their freedom. Uh, after a few days' journey, they ended up in Luther's city of Wittenberg, where, of course, the town folk uh, were very sympathetic with them and welcomed them in and clothed them and fed them. And, of course, these ladies became the talk of the town. Luther himself had renounced the monastic life some years before. And the monastery that he had been in, called the Black Cloister, had shut down, but Luther continued to live there, basically living in a huge monastery uh, building by himself as a pastor and a professor. Because he had helped these nuns plot their escape, uh, he felt an obligation to them. And so he began helping these uh, ladies find husbands or at least find ways to make a living for themselves. And within two years... Uh, all of the nuns had either married or found sustainable living situations, except for one. One by the name of Katharina von Bora. Luther had played matchmaker with most of them. Uh, he had tried to marry Katharina off a time or two, actually, but she uh, objected to the match for one reason or another. And the last time he tried to set her up... Uh, she said that I will marry Martin Luther or there's one other man that she named that she would marry. Well, word of this got back to Luther and so he realized, you know, maybe I should take a wife of my own. And so he did. He decided to make Katharina his wife. The former monk married the former nun. It's the stuff of the great romance stories, right? <laughs> uh, it seems kind of crazy. But on June 13th, 1525, Martin and Katharina said their wedding vows to one another in a small ceremony. Not many people were invited to the wedding. It was not a big ordeal. But because of Luther's celebrity status, while the wedding was small, the impact was big. It was a high-profile event. Uh, and it was also 
uh, became very quickly radically transformative in the way people viewed marriage and family life. And indeed, has been impactful down to our very day in the way that people in our civilization view marriage and family life. Luther's act of getting married was to his ethics what his act of nailing up the 95 Theses were to his theology. It was a radical act with lasting implications. Katie and Martin would be happily married for over two decades. Uh, their family uh, became very well known because they had so many visitors from all over. Uh, they were married for 21 years until Martin finally passed away. Together they had six children. They took in 11 foster kids, basically orphans that they adopted. Uh, they had as many as 25 uh, boarding students staying with them uh, at different times. So the home was very full. Their home became a center of ministry and hospitality, always filled not just with Martin and Katie and their children, but with colleagues and university students. And, and, and they would gather around the table together uh, for one of Katie's exquisite dinners. She was known for her cooking and for her brewing. Uh, the guests were always eager to soak up Luther's wisdom on just about any topic. And much of what he said was later written down and published in a book entitled Martin Luther's Table Talk. And so you could make the argument that Luther's table was just as crucial to the advance of the Reformation as his books and his published sermons. And it's interesting, as uh, you look at accounts of what happened around the Luther family table. Katie was very much an active participant in these discussions. She did not hesitate to share her opinion. And indeed, many of the Table Talk entries, if you look in the Table Talk uh, book, refer to the gathering as taking place at Katie's table uh, because she was certainly the household manager. Uh, Martin and Katie were known for their playful banter, their uh, light jabs towards one another. So their family life was always fun. It was a happy and delightful place to be. The home was a joyful place. Uh, Luther was remarkably respectful towards his wife, even giving her all kinds of titles, nicknames. Uh, he would refer to uh, Katie often as my rib, um, obviously referring to or alluding to Genesis chapter 2, where God creates Eve out of Adam's rib, out of Adam's Side. When he wrote her letters, he would say things like this. This is just an example of the kind of thing that he would say to her uh, in writing a letter. He says, To my kind, dear Lord, Catherine Luther, a doctor and preacher in Wittenberg, grace and peace in Christ, dear Lord Katie. That's how he began the letter. Okay, So uh, husbands, perhaps when you're texting your wife or writing her an email, uh, that's what you need to do. Then he would sign the letter, Your Obedient Servant, uh, Martin. Uh, there are some people who have accused Luther of misogyny. Uh, he did one time uh, remark when uh, it sounds like from the anecdote that uh, it's, it's told different ways, but the, the, the anecdote that seems the most trustworthy, uh, that, um, that she had interrupted him in one of these dinner table conversations. And so he suggested that from then on she should recite the Lord's Prayer to herself before speaking. <clears throat> not saying whether or not that's good advice for ladies to take, but that's what Luther suggested to his wife. He would use a play off of her name, uh, her name Katie, uh, but the German word for chain, as in ball and chain, is Ketty. Uh, so he would refer to her, in a, in, using a pun, basically on her name as his ball and chain. Uh, but the, these were not 
uh, derogatory in any way. They, this was playful banter between a husband and wife who truly loved one another. He described her as his spiritual companion, his closest friend, his confidant. And together they endured all kinds of ups and downs, griefs and joys, triumphs and trials. Together they raised several faithful children. They left behind a spiritual legacy that transformed a civilization, that transformed the world. The life they created together became a model. It became an inspiration, a new way of looking at family life, a picture of what God intended for marriage and family. And it's why some historians have referred to their marriage as perhaps the most important marriage in all of history. Maybe the most important marriage of the last 2,000 years because it changed radically the way people in our culture, our civilization, look at marriage and family life. Because of his stature, Luther's decision to marry and to raise a family was much more than a private decision. It had huge public impact. Again, it was not just Luther preaching this doctrine, but now as a family man living it out. And in doing so, he was really taking aim at the way the medieval church had viewed sex and marriage and women and children. His marriage was considered scandalous by his opponents. But certainly he saw it as holy. Again, it was perhaps the most famous wedding in history. By getting married and by having children, Luther, you could say, became the blessed man of Psalm 128. Psalm 128 describes the blessed man and his family life. Martin Luther became an example of what the blessed man looks like in real life. In fact, Psalm 128 was actually one of Luther's favorite psalms, and he loved it because he lived it. Psalm 128 describes the blessed man in three dimensions, really in three uh, relationships. It describes this man in his relationship with his God, with his wife, and with his children. And Luther is really an example for us in all three. Psalm 128 begins by saying this blessed man fears the Lord, and walks in His ways. If there's anything that characterized Martin Luther's relationship with God, it's that he was a God-fearing man. To fear God means you recognize God's greatness and God's authority. This was the fount of Luther's faith and Luther's piety. Luther certainly feared God. In fact, you could say for the first several years he spent in the monastery, he feared God in the wrong kind of way. He revered God, but he didn't fully trust God. He would confess his sin continually, but never get assurance because he was terrified of God. At one point, his confessor, his priest said to him, Martin, the problem is not that God is angry with you. The problem is you are angry with God. And that was, again, one of the remarks that led him to his gospel breakthrough. But when Luther came to understand the grace of God, and the gift of God given to us in Christ Jesus, he didn't stop showing God reverence. Rather, he started recognizing that God is merciful to sinners through Christ. And another one of his favorite psalms, Psalm 130, says, because, it's speaking to God, because you are merciful, you are to be feared. Coming to recognize God's Forgiveness, God's mercy, made Luther fear God all the more. Only now his fear was a reverent trust. Not just being afraid of God and how God might punish, the wrath God might dole out, but reverently trusting in God. And this fear of God that so characterized 
Luther's life spilled over to the rest of his family and shaped their home life. How did the fear of God manifest itself in in the Luther home? Well, very simply this. Every member of the family understood the final authority in the family is not the husband or the wife. The final authority in the home is Christ Himself. And everyone must submit to Christ. Yes, we have our different roles to play. There's a structure, there's an architecture to the family life with the husband as the head and the wife in submission to him as they are equal co-partners, but but structured in this way, their relationship. And of course, the children have to submit to the parents. But ultimately, everyone submits to Christ. And that is a check on the way parental authority or the husband's authority gets exercised in the home. And Luther got this. Because he feared God, he understood that he was always a man accountable to God. And he worked out this fear of God, this submission to God, in his relationships with his family members. So turn to the second relationship described here. His relationship with his wife. Verse 3 of the psalm describes the wife as a fruitful vine in the very heart of the man's house. It's sometimes put this way. If the man is the head of the family, the wife is its heart. And that was certainly true of the Lutheran home, uh, Martin Luther's home. Martin Luther's marriage transformed the way marriage was viewed. Where marriage came to be seen as a great blessing, a great gift of God. See, on the eve of the Reformation, marriage was seen, getting married was seen as a sign of spiritual failure. It meant you had compromised yourself. You couldn't be, if you were really holy, you would have lived a single celibate life in a monastery or a convent. Indeed, the way the medieval church viewed marriage, even physical relations between a husband and wife were tainted with sin. When Luther broke free of all of that by rediscovering the grace of God and the authority of God's Word, Luther began challenging those misconceptions about marriage in his writings. But it was especially in his life when he took a wife, when he took Katie as his bride, that this false view of marriage as tainted began to crumble. See, what happened in the late medieval church is the Pope would set the dowry price, that is the price that the bride's family had to pay for her to marry, just above, just a a bit higher than the endowment to a cloister required to put, say, a young girl into uh, the convent for life. So it was more expensive to give your daughter away in marriage than it was to send her to the convent to be a nun. It was financially advantageous for families to put their daughters in cloisters. A lot of people could no longer afford to, to marry their daughters off because the Pope had set that dowry price so high. And so it was financially attractive for fathers to put their daughters in the cloister. Luther saw all of this as a great corruption of God's institution, a a corruption of the church and a corruption of the family. Again, before the Reformation, a life of singleness in a convent or a monastery was considered the ideal of faithfulness. Marriage was second best. Luther challenged all that and changed all of that by saying, no, marriage is a symbol of Christ's relationship with the church. Christ's covenant with the church is symbolized by the marriage relationship. And so marriage is a glorious gift of God. Yes, God does call some people to a life of singleness, a life of celibacy. That's certainly there. There is that gift that God gives some. But most people, Luther said, need to marry. And it is a positive good that they do so. This is how he described it. 
And again, this may seem second nature to us, but in Luther's day, it was radical to say this kind of thing. Luther wrote this. He said, unless a young woman is in a high and unusual state of grace, she cannot do without a man as little as she could do without eating, drinking, sleeping, or other natural requirements, nor can a man do without a woman. The reason for this is that to conceive children is as deeply implanted in nature as eating and drinking are. The person who wants to prevent this and keep nature from doing what it wants to do and must do is simply preventing nature from being nature. Fire from burning, water from wetting, and man from eating, drinking, or sleeping. Luther said, Whoever is ashamed of marriage is also ashamed of being and being called human and tries to improve on what God has made. Luther saw marriage as something that was good, that God created to meet our needs. Needs, desires that God has given to us. When Luther wrote on the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, this is what he said. This is really his defense of the institution of marriage. He says, inasmuch as this commandment is concerned specifically with the estate of marriage and gives occasion to speak of it, let us carefully note first how highly God honors and glorifies the married life, sanctioning and protecting it by His commandment. Luther says marriage must be good because God put a commandment around it. The seventh commandment to protect the covenant of marriage. Luther says God established marriage first of all institutions, and He created man and woman differently, as is evident that they may be true to each other, be fruitful, beget children, and support and bring them up to the glory of God. God has therefore most richly blessed this estate above all others, and in addition has supplied and endowed it with everything in the world in order that this estate might be provided for richly and adequately married life is a glorious institution and an object of God's serious concern. Martin Luther says the purpose of life is to bring God glory. The purpose of marriage is to bring God glory. And God calls us into marriage that a husband and wife might glorify Him by how they live together and how they raise children together. But not only this, Luther says that the purpose of marriage is to serve the good of humanity. It meets our needs. It furthers human society. Human civilization depends upon it. Martin and Luther had a real, Martin Luther and, and his wife Katie had a really, really remarkable relationship with each other. Uh, when they got married, they, they really didn't know each other that well. You would not say they started out as soulmates. Uh, compatibility was not a precondition of their marriage. Rather, it was an achievement within marriage. They became soulmates over the course of their life together. There's no question they became the best of friends. And indeed, this whole idea that a man and his wife are to be the best of friends, again, something we might take for granted, the whole idea of a companionate marriage where a man and his wife are the best of friends. But it was a radical idea in the late medieval period. People did not think of friendship in that way. They did not, men did not think of their wives as friends. They thought of their wives generally as inferiors. But Luther said, no, the wife isn't equal to the man. She is his partner in the marriage, in the family. And a husband and wife are to be the best of friends. Now in doing this, Luther was recovering a biblical notion that goes all the way back at least to the book of Proverbs, if not to Genesis. In the book of Proverbs... Solomon, in imparting wisdom to his son, says, do not forsake the companion of your youth. And that word for companion there is a word that describes a best friend. And there it's used to describe the wife, the, the, the woman that the man has married 
in his youth. Luther was recovering this biblical notion of marriage as the deepest and most intimate form of human friendship. And again, this is something that we take for granted in so many ways, but Luther helped to pioneer to recover this biblical teaching that had been lost. Now, to say that they were best friends, that Martin and Katie were best friends, does not mean things always ran smoothly between them. In a candid letter, uh, Luther wrote to a friend and said, marriage is a chancy thing. Marriage is a chancy thing. One has to commit oneself to it. And indeed, that's true. He said in another place, first love is drunken. That kind of romantic love, that kind of honeymoon phase that you're in when you first get married. He says, first love is drunken, but when the intoxication wears off, then comes true married love. Uh, He talks about the adjustment of getting married. And ladies, you'll find this very, very interesting. He says, before I was married, the bed... This is the bed he slept in in the black cloister. The bed was not made for a whole year and became foul with sweat. But I worked so hard and was so weary, I tumbled in without noticing it at the end of the day. Now, (laughs) Katie took care of that. She took care of that problem. Uh, But then he goes on, he says this, there is a lot to get used to in the first year of marriage. One wakes up in the morning and finds a pair of pigtails on the pillow which were not there before. Uh, He he talks quite a bit about the adjustment that married life brought. All that he had to learn, all that Katie had to learn in their first year, or really first several years of marriage together. Luther says marriage is a chancy thing. You have to commit yourself to it. But this is exactly what Martin and Katie did. And by committing themselves to it, there was great Joy, a joy unparalleled by any other human relationship. They found this joy in one another. One of Luther's famous proverbs about marriage, perhaps you've heard this one before, he says, let the wife make the husband glad to come home and let him make her sorry to see him go. That's the kind of relationship where a husband and wife enjoy one another. And they're so deeply invested in one another's lives and they're serving one another so faithfully. This is the kind of relationship they have. They delight to be in one another's presence. But Luther, again, was very honest about the challenges that come with married life. He called marriage the school of character. See, again, before the Reformation, if you really wanted to grow in grace, you really wanted to be holy, where would you go? You would go to the monastery or to a convent, and that's where you would learn virtue. Luther came along and said, no, really, the family is the school of character. Don't go to the monastery, get married and raise kids, and that will teach you virtue. Because family life is hard. Family life is all about Bearing the cross. He says this. Again, this is another quote from Luther about marriage. He says, Good God, what a lot of trouble there is in marriage. Adam has made a mess of our nature. He says, think of all the squabbles Adam and Eve must have had in the course of their 900 years. Eve would say, you ate the apple. And Adam would retort, but you gave it to me. <clears throat> that may sound like some of the arguments you have in your household. Luther was not at all... Uh, oblivious to the struggles that come with marriage. But he saw marriage as a glorious and joyful estate that God calls us into, that God has made us for. Now something else that's really interesting is the way Luther transformed wedding customs in Western civilization. Again, this is something we very much take for granted in our day, but it was not always so. 
One historian puts it this way, Today, Western Christian weddings generally follow a standard protocol. A couple becomes engaged, the engagement is announced, followed by a period of wedding planning. The couple is married by a priest or minister in a church before a gathering of friends and family, and the union is celebrated at a reception following the church ceremony. We have Luther to thank for this tradition. Prior to his reforms, marriage was not regulated in any way, which led to confusion and chaos. Again, even though the medieval church regarded marriage as a sacrament, uh, the the church did very, very little uh, to regulate marriage. And it created all kinds of messes, all kinds of disasters. And so, for example, you'd have a, a, a young man and a young woman, maybe as young as 13 years old, who would declare their love for one another and just decide on their own that, hey, we're a married couple and begin sleeping with each other and then go tell everybody they were married. And again, let me read to you from a historian what this what came out of this. These rogue marriages and promises of marriage between minors resulted in thousands of he said, she said arguments. The ecclesiastical courts, the church courts, were overrun with cases of contested betrothal. In Augsburg, for example, almost half of all the marriage cases brought before the ecclesiastical court were for contested vows. These are people who can't decide whether or not they're actually married. One says yes, the other says no. Nearly two-thirds of the marriage cases in the Regensburg Episcopal Court were for contested marriages. Marriage was so unregulated, people didn't even know whether they were married or not. Luther helped get both the church and the state involved in overseeing the formation of marriages. And indeed, the kind of, again, the, the kind of wedding pattern that we're familiar with, even the wedding service that we're familiar with, where a a bride and a groom exchange vows in front of witnesses, and it's a very public kind of thing, that owes a great deal to Luther. Our wedding liturgies owe a great deal to Luther. They also owe a great deal in the English language to Thomas Cranmer, the English reformer who wrote the Book of Common Prayer. But these things were not in place in medieval Europe. Again, listen to a historian describe this. Luther's reforms were effective Couples who were required to meet with a priest, publicly announce their engagement in advance, receive their parents' blessing, avoid engaging in premarital sex, and be married in the presence of family and friends in an official church ceremony were much more likely to take their vows seriously and to keep them. Within ten years of Luther's reforms, the number of contested marriages was dramatically reduced. So we have Luther to thank not just for Uh, the way that marriage is prized as a relationship between a husband and wife who are equal to one another and who are the best of friends. But even the wedding ceremony itself, as we know it, was heavily influenced by Luther. We'll turn back to Psalm 128. There's one other relationship Psalm 128 describes. The blessed man's relationship with his children. His children are described as olive plants around his table. They're not weeds that need to be uprooted. They're olive plants that need to be tended to and nurtured and cared for. Luther considered his children the great joy of his life along with Katie. He saw having children as a Christian obligation. He said there's nothing more valuable for God or for Christendom than bearing children. He says if married people can do no better work and do nothing more valuable either for God or for Christendom, for all the world, for themselves and for their children than to bring up their children well. He saw this as a Christian 
calling, a way of serving God and serving civilization, having children and bringing them up faithfully. In his writings, he warns repeatedly against undisciplined children. He says there's no greater tragedy in Christendom than spoiling children. He says if we want to help Christendom, we most certainly have to start with our children as happened in earlier times. As if Luther is suggesting the way to really change the world is through having children and raising them up faithfully, doing bedtime stories with them, doing family worship with them, disciplining them as needed, praising them. In fact, really, Luther's whole philosophy of child-rearing is very simple. Uh, Luther provided a doctrinal basis, a doctrinal platform for mothers and fathers to build their parenting practices off of. And that doctrinal basis is really, really important. He said, look, when our children are certainly sinners, but our children are also gifts of God, and He has made a promise about our children in His Word, claiming our children as His own. God said to Abraham, I will be a God to you and to your children. And so Luther says we're to baptize our children and to know that our children are loved by God. When they're baptized, they're brought into Christ and into His church. Luther emphasizes God's promises over particular parental techniques. Yes, parents need to be wise in how they raise their children, but the most important thing is to rest in those promises God has made. Parents have promises about their children. That's foundational. Our children have promises before they have testimonies. And indeed, that promise God has made to them and about them is going to shape the way their testimony looks later in life. Luther is very, very clear that the church belongs to newly baptized children and newly baptized children belong to the church just as much as any of us do. So Luther would have us believe that Thomas Harding, young as he is, but having been baptized today, he is just as much a Christian as any one of us. And Luther puts the responsibility of teaching kids squarely on the shoulders of the father. He does this in partnership with the mother, but it's ultimately his responsibility. And so, for example, Luther's small catechism is addressed to the head of the family and requires him to teach his children, to teach his whole household the Christian faith. And so really, with this kind of doctrinal basis, Luther's philosophy of parenting was really quite simple. This is basically what he says. Our children are sinners but they're loved by God. Our children are people. The humanity of children. Another thing that Luther, really you could say, rediscovered out of the Scriptures that children are people too and ought to be treated as such. Treated with dignity and respect. Children should be loved as neighbors. They're our closest neighbors. And we ought to love them as we love ourselves. We ought to discipline them when they do wrong. We ought to praise them when they do right. And we ought to instruct them in God's Word at all times. Luther said, spare the rod, spoil the child, but beside the rod, keep an apple to give him when he has done well. Luther knew that while correction and discipline were necessary, praise and reward are a much more powerful motivator to do what is right. Martin and Katie loved their children dearly, and they weren't shy about showing that love. They knew that love is the air our kids breathe, and without it, they suffocate. Like the blessed man in Psalm 128, Luther delighted in his children. He exclaimed, children are the most delightful fruit in a loving marriage. How great a joy posterity affords a man. Sadly, uh, Martin and Katie lost two of their children in childhood. They lost one in infancy. And Luther has some very touching words 
uh, about uh, children who die in infancy, instruction, uh, and comfort, words of comfort that he gives to women who have had a miscarriage. Uh, they lost another child, Magdalena, uh, at the age of 14. And it was a real heartbreaking episode for Martin and for Katie. As they laid her body in the coffin, Luther said this, said, my darling, you will rise and shine like the stars and the sun. And he turned to Katie and said, how strange it is to know that she is at peace and all is well and yet to be sorrowful. Luther wrote Magdalena's epitaph. Uh, he wrote these words as her epitaph. Here I, Magdalena, Dr. Luther's little maid, resting with the saints, sleep in my narrow bed. I was a child of death, for I was born in sin, but now I live redeemed, Lord Christ, by the blood you shed for me. For Martin Luther, the cross was always the center of the family's life. Yes, the cross in the sense of bearing hardship. Family life brings with it all kinds of trials, all kinds of sufferings. We have our crosses to bear in family life. But also the cross, because the cross is our hope. The cross is our ultimate source of every blessing and every good thing. It's our hope because the blood of Christ shed is our forgiveness. It is our salvation. For Martin Luther, family life was blessed life. Family life was blessed by God and a way for us to bless one another and indeed bless the world. Yes, family life has its challenges, its trials, its hardships, its struggles. But family life is also a life of great joy and blessing for those who fear the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do give You thanks and praise for whatever our family situation or circumstances in life are. We know that You are faithful. Your goodness to us abounds. Father, we pray that we would be like the blessed man in Psalm 128, that we would fear You and walk in Your ways that we would know Your love and Your peace and Your joy, even in the hardest of times, that Your goodness to us would shine through. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.